And uh, these three weeks leading up to Christmas, we're talking about three Christmas songs found in the Gospel of Luke. These are bits of poetry that surround uh, the birth narrative of Jesus. And these three songs were used by the ancient church all the way up to today, uh, used and prayed every single day of the year. And so this is something that we can use. We can be praying these Christmas songs every day of the year. Today, we're talking about what's called the Magnificat. It's named after the first Latin word in the prayer. These are the words of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she exclaims these as she comes to her relative Elizabeth's home. Elizabeth is the soon-to-be mother of John the Baptist. And when Elizabeth sees her, Elizabeth exults that Mary has come and that she is carrying the Messiah, her Lord. And so when Elizabeth says that, now Mary knows for sure that what the angel Gabriel promised her will come to pass. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. A reading from Luke 1, 46-55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to to God. God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that uh, you would visit us uh, by becoming human for us and sending your son uh, to live and die in our place. We ask that you would help us to now, by your spirit, hear this good news and help us to believe it. Uh, Please turn our hearts and our minds toward you. Uh, and glorify yourself in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If there was, uh, when, when my daughters were younger, if there was one activity that could guarantee tears and crying, it was playing the board game Life. You might be familiar with the board game. Uh, everyone starts in a car because this is America. And we all start in our cars, right? And that you go through the board game, you, you may or may not go to college, but you will get a job, and your salary will, you know, is dependent upon your job. You might buy stock, you might buy insurance, all different kinds of things might happen to you. I think you absolutely must get married, I'm not sure about that, but generally you get married, um, and you'll end up either in the poor house or on easy street. Um, but the greatest area of conflict was children, because there's actually no guarantee you will have children, and my girls wanted a, a, a carload of kids. Uh, in fact, they would actually kick out the husband uh, t- to create more space for kids, and whoever had fewer kids was pretty upset. So for, for my girls, for most of us, right, losing the game of life is crummy. It feels crummy. But losing at real life is unbearable and crushing. What, what does it mean to lose at life, to actually be a loser? 
Our culture loves to distinguish between winners and losers. Winners are successful at what they set out to do. Winners usually have lots of money or at least enough to be comfortable. Winners usually have a full family life, or if, if not, it's because they don't want a family and they're uh, fulfilled otherwise. Winners have status in their communities. They have agency. Their voice matters. Winners are esteemed by others. And losers lack these things. And it was very similar 2,000 years ago in the Mediterranean world. Losers were generally poor, powerless, at the bottom of the social hierarchy. No one cared about them. They were basically invisible. And that sums up about everything we know about Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was a poor peasant girl, a teenager. No parents that Luke cared to mention. Luke doesn't even say that she was a a worshiper, a faithful worshiper of God. She was a nobody. In the eyes of her surrounding world, she was a loser and always would be a loser. But what Mary realizes here is that God sees her. In his eyes, she is the mother of the incarnate Son of God. This Magnificat, this prayer used by the church every evening enables you to exult with Mary. God sees me. God has done marvelous things for me. And we need to realize that and pray that. So we're going to look at this under two headings. And the first one is this, God sees the losers. Now, this term loser, it's a pretty sharp term for us. And I'm using it because I'm trying to convey the power of the biblical terms found here in their world. Verse 48, Mary exults that God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Well, this phrase, humble estate, that doesn't mean that much to us. In Greek, the word means simply lowliness, and it was used to convey where you fell on the social hierarchy, the social ladder. It meant you were at the bottom. You were low. Nowadays, though, humility is kind of a virtue. The great and powerful are meant to signal humility somehow, even if they do a bad job at it, right? We have this term now called humble brag, right? I'm so humbled to be on the New York Times bestseller list, right? We, somehow we have to be humble about our great success. Well, humble estate wasn't humble brag. That, that, that doesn't hit us like it would hit Luke's readers 2,000 years ago. No one wanted a humble estate. It meant you were invisible. You had no agency. You had no resources. You weren't considered important in any way. And so being a a loser in the world's eyes is a term that gets us closer to what Mary is saying about herself. That's why I'm putting this term loser in quotes. And what is so shocking to Mary is that her world and its value system didn't see the losers, the low. But God apparently does. God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Both then and now, it's hard not to assume that if there is a God, he sees the winners. Because that's who we see, right? That's who we're looking at. That's who we read. That's who we're following online. That's who we aspire to be. That's who is hashtag blessed. There is a survey of young people, you know, what, do, what career do you want when you grow up? The number one career young people want? Online influencer. That's what they want to grow up to be, right? Because they're winners, because their voice matters, right? There's thousands of people tuning in to hear what they have to say. Who doesn't want to be a winner? God sees the important people. God sees the winners because that's who we see. Or, another way to put it, if they're winners and important, it's because God has seen them and he has blessed them. 
we don't usually see the low, the unimportant, the left behinds and the left outs. And wherever we experience lowliness, wherever we see ourselves as losers, we just assume God doesn't see me. If God saw me, I'd be doing better. If God saw me, I'd be noticed. If God saw me, I'd be valuable in my eyes and others' eyes. If God saw me, I would be fulfilled. Everyone else has a romantic partner, but I'm single and I don't want to be. God doesn't see me. Everyone else is building a career, but I don't have a job or I have a job I hate. God doesn't see me. Everyone else has a warm family or a community to spend the holidays with, but I don't. God doesn't see me. Everyone else is having kids if they want to and doing all the fun Christmas stuff with kids, but we're infertile. God doesn't see us. Yes, he does. In fact, God pays particular attention to the ones the world overlooks, to the losers. This is what theologians call the great reversal. And Mary recites it here. God, in his power, has scattered the proud. He brings down the high and mighty, and he lifts up the weak and lowly. He sends the rich away empty, and he fills the hungry with good things. Jesus says similar things at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, right? Remember, the poor in spirit, they're blessed. The meek, they inherit the earth. Those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, they will be filled. And this goes all the way back to Abraham, right? The author of the faith, Genesis 12. Mary references him here in the Magnificat. Abraham, this old man with his wife, infertile. God calls them from their home and sends them to be a stranger in a strange land. And from them, God will make a great nation. And through them, God will bless all nations. This is the great reversal. It's the upside-down kingdom. It's the way of the world turned on its head. Why? Why, what does God have against the rulers and the rich and the winners and the important people? Well, he has nothing against them inherently. But God will always be against people who use their position to serve themselves at the expense of others, dehumanizing, denigrating those who are considered beneath them. These people in their self-satisfaction and pride, their value system is just out of whack. They don't recognize goodness and mercy. They don't recognize that God has blessed them to be a blessing, and so God will overturn it. God will reverse it. By choosing the low and the left behind, God is highlighting his power and his mercy. So a great way to know uh, if you truly fear God is to check how you treat people who have lower status than you. You will fear God and you will honor his image bearers if you know he sees the people no one else sees. God sees the loser, the one with the empty table, the empty bank account, the empty crib, the empty resume, the empty social calendar, the empty bed. God sees you in your places of shame and loss and lowliness. Now, how do I know? Well, because God becomes a loser for us. That's the second point. God becomes a loser for us. Richard Dawkins, the brilliant, angry atheist, he has this to say about the incarnation, this idea of God taking on flesh. He writes, I don't see the Olympian gods or Jesus coming down and dying on the cross as worthy of the grandeur of the supernatural. They strike me as parochial, 
if there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything any theologian or any religion has ever proposed. Richard Dawkins has it exactly the opposite. He's thinking along the world's terms that if God shows up, it has to be grand and beautiful and and glorious. No, 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 no. God sees the losers. God shows up for the losers. God becomes like us. That is the real grandeur and glory of God. And that's what the gospel writers are trying to say. That's the secret. God will be parochial, to use Dawkins' terms, in order to save us and overturn the world's crazy values. Well, how? How does God become a loser for us? Well, the infinite and eternal takes on mortal, finite flesh. He becomes a helpless child. He's born into poverty. Jesus is literally a refugee as a child. He'll be considered an illegitimate child since Mary was pregnant with him before she was officially married to Joseph. And Jesus will continue to be poor, saying that he had nowhere to lay his head. He'll be attacked and lied about. He'll be sneered at for his hometown. His royal lineage will be unknown. He'll be considered public enemy number one. His brothers won't believe in him. His closest friends will deny and abandon him. He won't know romantic love. He won't know parenthood. His own people will demand his execution. And he will be crucified, which to the Roman state was the way of making someone invisible, to erase them from humanity, the ultimate fate of an ultimate loser. But this is how God saves and redeems and lifts up the low. He enters our darkness, the places of our greatest defeats, and he remains steadfast there and rises from the dead. The answer to all the horrors and evil in this world is the crucifixion of the Son of God. Now, Mary didn't know all of this specifically, but she knew that God was doing something marvelous in her, that her being the mother of Christ was the ultimate expression of God seeing and caring for the low and the humble, including her, that he was saving her through this lowliness, and he was going to bring justice to the earth. And so you can pray these same words here that she does, because God puts Jesus in you too. He sees you. He wants to live in you. You are a suitable place for God. Or another way to put it, God is making you a suitable place for him. God is making you his temple. See, Mary, she was aware of her loser status, yet she was able to exult. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. In God's grace, Mary will be called and empowered to do something that alters history. This is a girl in her mid-teens. She's only a few years older than my daughters. She has no voice, no agency, no one sees her, and yet she will raise the Savior. And she's confident that history will remember her and call her blessed. How audacious. What a brave girl. I was uh, reading a while back uh, what it means to feel like you matter. What is mattering? And experts explain that mattering involves more than feeling like you belong in a group. It's also being missed by the people of that group if you weren't there. When it comes to self-esteem, you can like yourself and you can feel capable, but you still won't be a happy person if no one notices you when you enter a room. 
to matter, people must feel valued, heard, appreciated, cared for. They must feel like they add value in ways that make them feel capable, important, and trusted. So mattering is this two-part definition, feeling valued and adding value. And that's what Mary is saying here in the Magnificat. God sees me and God gives me something great to do. I matter. Low and humble Mary, this is the way of God. And if Jesus is in you by faith, then you can know for sure that you matter too. God sees you and he gives you something to do. Only you can bring beauty and order and good news to your particular array of contexts and relationships. You're the only one with those. So even in the world's eyes, if you have nothing to offer, in God's eyes, you add eternal value. And so that's what this prayer invites you to pray at the end of every day. God has done great things for me. He has seen me and noticed me. He has worked through me. Jesus is alive in me. Because of his resurrection, the places of my shame and defeat will be occasions for his glory and victory. Now, the problem with praying this prayer regularly is that most of us go through our day with our whole goal to be never to feel like Mary. I'm not a loser. I don't want to be a loser. I don't want to feel like a loser. I have to prove that I matter and I add value. I have to make sure that I'm seen and noticed. Right? If your intention is to just crush it and win, 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 this prayer is not going to resonate with you. You're not going to want to pray it because you don't need Jesus. You feel like you don't need him. But actually, you do. Something my wife Erin said to me uh, one time was, I, I found it profound. Uh, I actually searched online to see if this comes from somewhere, and I couldn't find it online. So it's possible she made this up. I don't know. She says... If you don't choose humility, humility will choose you. If you don't choose humility, humility will choose you, right? Humility is coming for all of us in so many different ways. I mean, that's what old age is, right? It is a humbling, and we will all die. So why not acknowledge and own the humbling, right? There are places in your life of extreme weakness and lowliness and loserness, and those are the places where God shows up. This is where you find God. The way to know God right now today is to know him in humility because that's how he came to us. God will return one day in glory and power, and he will share that with his people, but for now today, you can know him from a position of humility. Just this week, I was talking with someone from our congregation. They were kind of going over their life story and perspective. And through tears, they said, will I always be invisible? Will I always be overlooked? Do I have any value? Well, in the dark of night, Mary felt exactly the same way until God showed up in her life. And because of Jesus, you can pray her words as well. Tim Tebow is this famous college quarterback, played for the University of Florida, Heisman Trophy winner, national champion. I'm sure Stephen can tell you all about him. Um, I was watching a documentary about that Florida team, and, and he was being interviewed a lot, and he was talking about you know, when they started to become really great, like this incredible energy that was happening in them. And he explained his background. He, he said that he came from a conservative Christian family, 
and uh, that when his mom was pregnant with him, it was a very risky pregnancy. The doctors didn't give them much of a chance for uh, him to survive. And so his parents always saw him as a miracle, and that's how they would talk to him, right? Like, it is a miracle that you are here. You are clearly meant to do awesome and great things. And he's looking at the camera, and he says, do you know what happens when you hear that about yourself over and over again? You begin to believe it. Pray the Magnificat regularly, like the church has done for 2,000 years, and you will begin to believe it. God sees you and has become like you to meet you in your lowliness. And in your life, he will bring down the arrogant and he will lift up the humble. He will turn your losses into wins and he will do great things through you. That's what it means to have Jesus alive in you. Let's pray. God, again, we are so grateful for this good news. We're grateful for Mary and her faithfulness that she received your word, accepted it, and bore your son. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to save us and for taking on our humility, our lowliness, our loser status. Do you know what it is to be hungry, to be chased, to have nowhere to lay your head? You know what it is to have no one and nothing. Thank you for taking on our weakness, our death, our humility, and rising from the dead. Help us to live in the power of your resurrection. Fill us with your spirit and make us a people who see the invisible who see the people no one else sees. We know you see them, and you see us. So help us to live your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.